Just when you thought we'd stop talking about Brexit, here we are again. Welcome. My name is Kevin Featherstone, and I'm a professor at the European Institute at the London School of Economics. Today's event is part of the LSE programme on Brexit and beyond. In the last couple of years, we've had a series of events uh, looking at the different implications and perspectives on Brexit. Today, we meet as another deadline passes. On the 31st of January, the UK ceased being a member of the European uh, Union. But until the end of this year, we are in what's called a transition period. The purpose of the transition is to negotiate a future relationship between the EU and the UK. Many think the time is too short to negotiate such a deal against the clock, as it were. The UK had until the end of this month to request a, an extension to the negotiations. It's decided not to do so. Many think a deal has actually got to be agreed by October so that it could be ratified by the EU 27 national uh, parliaments and indeed by the European uh, parliaments. So come what may, we're on a tight time schedule. Are we heading for a deal or no deal? And what are the implications of these scenarios? We have a panel of guests that can help us understand where we are exactly, what might happen, and what the implications might be. They'll each speak initially for five minutes. We'll have a short discussion, and then we'll open it up to uh, questions. Do please send us your uh, questions at any time. Simply use the Q&A facility at the bottom of the Zoom screen. You can also uh, send us your Twitter comments, and the hashtag is hashtag LSECOVID19. The event is being recorded, and we hope to make it available through download later as a podcast. When you're sending us your questions, do please tell us your name and where you're writing from. We'd like to know. So let me introduce our panel of experts in the order that they'll be uh, speaking to us. Professor Catherine Bernard is Professor of European Union and Labour Law at the University of Cambridge. Professor Tony Travers is Associate Dean of the LSE School of Public Policy. Dr. Meredith Crowley is a reader in international economics at the University of Cambridge and a senior fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe think tank. Dr. Adam Marshall is Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce. And last but certainly not least, Professor Anand Menon is Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. So we're going to cover the law, the economics, the politics of Brexit to give us a rounded picture. We're here to explain, to assess and to speculate. Do send us your questions. We'd like to hear from you as we go along. Uh, but let's begin assessing where we are and what the options might be from a legal perspective. And let me pass you over to Professor Catherine Bernard. Hello, and thank you very much indeed for the invitation. I'm going to talk a little bit about timescales, about stumbling blocks, and I'm going to talk um, about the Court of Justice. So we're going to start by having a look at the timetable. For those of you who've um, been on this programme with us, you will have seen I've used this slide before, just to summarise where we're up to. 
the withdrawal agreement, um, that's the divorce text, uh, came into force on the 31st of January 2020 when we left the EU. And we're now in this transition period, confusingly known as the implementation period by the government. And today was meant to be a big day. Today was meant to be a day when the UK sensibly asked for an extension to the transition period that we're currently in to give us time to um, negotiate and implement uh, any future trade deal. But of course, change of government, um, or at least a change of prime minister, change of tack in December 2019, and a strong commitment that there would be no extension to the transition period. Furthermore, there was meant to be a deal on fisheries by today and a recognition of equivalence on financial services. That's what the political declaration said. We would have agreed by now. None of that's happened either. So transition is due to come to an end by the 31st of December. And that magnificent new trade deal that we're meant to have is meant to start on the 1st of January. But there are problems ahead. This beautiful timetable may well be frustrated by politics and particularly the politics of what the UK and the EU want. And I want to talk a little bit about governance. Governance is a rather rebarbative term for um, who's in charge of this agreement and what happens when things go wrong. Now, this rather inelegant slide is what the EU is asking for. And the key thing for you to note from this slide is that the EU sees the um, agreement with the UK as part of a house with an overall governance strategy. Why does the EU want that? Because if the UK were to default over something like, for example, fish, then um, there could also be implications for the separate agreement on um, energy or transport. You can have retaliation across the sectors. Now, the UK is very wary of that. The UK doesn't see this agreement as one big house. Instead, what the UK wants is one rather thin free trade agreement, which covers goods and services and level playing field. And then a number, about 10 or 11 separate agreements on things like fish, law enforcement, social security. Um, in other words, what they want is something more like a Swiss arrangement. And the Swiss have got 120 agreements, um, all freestanding without that common overarching governance. Now, crucially, and I apologise for the typo, it looks like um, uh, some ant has got into this. There is no agreement proposed by the UK at all on foreign and security policy, despite the commitment to that uh, in um, the political declaration. But what you can see is there's a real problem about whether we go for one big fat agreement, as the um, EU wants, or a number of skinnier agreements Swiss style as the UK wants. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks of all is the role of the Court of Justice. Now, this slide is a slide prepared by the EU about the so-called remedies provisions in the withdrawal agreement, that's the divorce text. Now, as you can see, the remedies provisions in the withdrawal agreement, that's what happens when things go wrong, involve essentially arbitration, which you can see on the left-hand side. But the crucial issue is, if the arbitration panel 
which is a panel which uh, has representatives of both the EU and the UK on it, if the arbitration panel thinks that the matter raises a question of EU law, can you see the big red arrow? That's where the matter gets sent off to the European Court of Justice. Now, what the EU wants out of the trade deal is basically a cut and paste of this remedies arrangement to be applied into the new free trade agreement. And the UK is having none of it. The UK has a visceral rejection, a visceral gut reaction about the role of the Court of Justice, having some court, some foreign court, having a say over what the UK is doing. And to give you an example of that, you will see the response from um, Marc Francois yesterday. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Just before I do, I want to just show you this. Now, this is the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the Northern Ireland Protocol is attached to the withdrawal agreement, the uh, divorce text. And remember, even if we have no trade deal at all at the end of this year, the Northern Ireland Protocol will still stand. Now, buried in the Northern Ireland Protocol, in obscure language, is Article 10.1 on state aid. The state aid is a provision intended to stop governments giving dollops of cash to failing industries or failing businesses without permission from the EU. Now, Article 10.1 of the Northern Ireland Protocol says, oh, the provisions of union law listed in Annex 5 shall apply to the United Kingdom. That looks pretty bland. Until you go to Annex 5 and you see in Annex 5, it's the whole phalanx of EU rules on state aid. And note as well, Article 12 of the Northern Ireland Protocol which says that all of the institutions and agencies of the EU shall um, have power over the United Kingdom in respect to the protocol, including, wait for it, the European Court of Justice. That's the bit in red um, at the bottom of the slide. Now, you could say this drives the coach and horses through the UK's absolute adamant refusal to accept jurisdiction of the Court of Justice. Now, a number of people in the Conservative Party say, well, that's the Northern Ireland Protocol and that's what Theresa May signed up to. We have got a new government with a new mandate and we should have nothing to do with the Court of Justice. And you see that in Marc Francois's letter yesterday. Um, I put the arrow at the top of page two just so you can see. He helpfully advises Michel Barnier that in the spirit of honesty between friends and for the avoidance of doubt, there can be no way that the Court of Justice can be allowed to have any role in the UK's national life after the end of this year. So Court of Justice is really a very serious red line for the um, UK and it's equally a red line for the EU because the EU says well anything to do with EU law it's got to be adjudicated by the Court of Justice. The UK actually recognises that point and therefore they have gone out of their way in the proposed text to make sure that there is very little reference if any at all to EU law and by actually ring-fencing the text from any reference to EU law terms, therefore, that will be a way of keeping out the European Court of Justice. Final point. 
This brings me back to my timetable. Remember the slide I showed you right at the start of my remarks and how it's all going to look absolutely fine by the 31st of December, transition ends, and we seamlessly go into the future trade deal. Big problem, of course, is that even if a deal is concluded by, say, the end of October, as the UK and the EU seem to want, that deal is going to have to be ratified by all of the national and regional parliaments across the EU. And um, at the moment, the Dutch parliament is um, kicking up rough over a different trade agreement. That's the Canadian trade agreement, the CETA. So it's not obvious that all national and, national and regional parliaments across the EU will say, oh, this is great, we're going to sign this one off without a problem. And there's a further problem too, because of course the UK, UK manufacturers are going to have to adapt to the new world order and that will take time. So the million dollar question and the things that you should be looking out for is whether in respect of that free trade agreement, you discover that what's built into it is a further implementation period, a further implementation period, a period to turn off aspects of EU law. Now, most trade agreements have an implementation period built into them of about five years. That clearly won't be acceptable to the UK. But do look to see whether there is some implementation built into this of even one or two years. Now, let's go for the middle one. Let's say two years. We really do start new trading arrangements on the 1st of January 2023. But don't think Brexit is done because Brexit will never be done. A bit like the Swiss, there's constant negotiation of the aspects of the agreement. And it may be that the next decade is spent in various ways negotiating amendments to any free trade agreement that um, the UK and EU enter into by the end of this year. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Because for me, it's far better that we leave with some trade deal in place, even if it's a very thin one, because at least it means that there will be amicable trading relations between the EU and the UK, and the politics will not be as sour as they will be if we leave with no trade deal at the end of this year. Thank you very much. Thank you, Catherine, very much indeed uh, for that. So, Tony, we could be uh, talking about Brexit until 2033. Uh, very good for the LSE programme on Brexit and beyond, but uh, what about the politics supporting the beyond? Okay, well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, Kevin, and it's good to um, see and metaphorically see uh, all of those who come to these excellent events every time we have one at another deadline day. And thank you, Catherine, for pointing out that, in effect, a series of further deadline days potentially lie ahead. What I want to do really is to talk about a bit less, I suspect, than my colleague um, panel members today about Brexit as such. Just say a few words, three or four or five minutes words worth, about everything else that surrounds the issue of Brexit. Because as you said, Kevin, uh, at the beginning, in a sense, um, it's always kind of good to get back to uh, Brexit. It takes our minds off uh, COVID-19, which has become a massive dominant policy issue in a way that people used to say Brexit dominated everything in UK politics. Well, now we've ended up with something new. And I just want to talk very briefly about the way I think 
that what's happened in the last three or four months with COVID-19 radically alters the backdrop to all the things that are going to be discussed today. So you know, we've seen in the last three to four months, the UK's economic position change in a way that probably hasn't occurred in anything like the same way since 1945. So a radical, massive increase in the annual deficit, which will contribute pound to pound uh, to the national debt. And um, with a massive crisis, which has engulfed government, uh, and in some ways completely eclipsed Brexit, as I've just implied, it's taken, a, I mean, we used to think that there was no bandwidth in Whitehall and government because of Brexit. Well, recently there's been no bandwidth, bandwidth because of COVID-19. And uh, Brexit is in some ways sidelined in UK politics. And of course, it, it, it is now beginning to trigger changes to the machinery of government. So the cabinet secretary has said uh, he's departing. There's going to be a new national security advisor. There are likely to be other changes at the top of the UK government. So uh, what we're now going to see is Brexit taking place at a time when potentially radical changes to uh, the structure of government in Britain and the personnel involved in the permanent part of government are themselves changing. So just looking at the rest of politics, the surround for the debate about this uh, next stage in uh, the Brexit negotiations. Well, you know, the most obvious thing to, to, to mention is that um, there is going to be uh, no return to austerity. The Prime Minister has made this point again today that even though the deficit and the additions to national debt are far greater than was the case in 28, 9, 10, it's clear that the government is going to go on spending, may have some tax cuts, and is going to try to re rebuild the economy um, at the same time as handling uh, uh, Brexit. But of course, and going back to something Catherine said, this means that in terms of state aid rules, uh, one of the things the government is going to be doing is investing in British businesses to protect them from the consequences of COVID-19. Now, it's true, other EU countries, I think my colleagues will agree on this, have, in, for emergency purposes, been able to overcome the state aid rules. But it's clearly now going to be the case that intervention in British industry will become, in a way it was in the past, more the norm. And this is another reason why uh, the state aid rules and the limitations, as the many members of the government see it, imposed by uh, the EU will be an awkward impediment. So they're even more awkward now as a result of the need to rebuild or sustain and rebuild the economy uh, post-COVID-19. So um, if we look ahead, the entire economic and political system is now going to be under pressure. So just briefly, um, the economy is going to need to be restructured at a time when Whitehall is being restructured to uh, make a, a different kind of machinery of government inside uh, the core of the cabinet office and Downing Street. And they'll be dealing uh, with Brexit on top of all these other radical influences on the UK government. So I think this poses just a few questions, then I shall stop. Uh, you know, the first is, can um, the current cabinet uh, deliver a recovering economy, 
Now, it's true the economy will be growing sharply next year, uh, given the uh, fall this year. So one of the intriguing things is that as Brexit happens, there'll be a rapid growth in the UK economy, simply as it's a recovery from the enormous contraction, perhaps 10 to 15 percent this year. But can the government, the current cabinet, deliver a recovering economy and Brexit at the same time? Uh, Linked to that, how can they do this, protecting the red wall, the so-called red wall of constituencies and their MPs from the risk of a double blow, one because of COVID-19 and the other because of the potential impact, certainly if there's no deal Brexit, of Brexit. That doubles the pressure on the government. And then uh, linked to that is, you know, how will public opinion view all of this in the months ahead? Government's still ahead in the opinion polls, and that's not quite as healthier lead as it once was. The opposition now has a new leader. It's going to be a bit more difficult with public opinion, I suspect, in the uh, weeks and months ahead. Uh, And then just to finish by saying, I do think that the next six months to a year, so embracing the 31st of December, will be one of the most challenging periods for the UK's government and economy in modern times. And it does look to me as if we're about to live through a major change, constitutional and economic change to the United Kingdom of a kind that hasn't happened for very many years. Uh, And on on that point, I'll finish. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Tony, very much indeed. Uh, So let's switch to the economics and Meredith. With COVID-19 and the pandemic, um, economically, is Brexit now simply a sideshow? Meredith. Um, no, I don't think it is. Um, so I'll I'll start off by just talking about the UK's trade strategy and where we are. Um, and so just the first question is like, what is the UK's overall trade strategy? What did they choose to do? So the first thing they've chosen to do is they've chosen to pursue a series of bilateral trade agreements with customs unions or, or individual countries. So one option they had on the table, they chose not to go down was they could have negotiated an agreement between, say, the UK and the USMCA, a free trade agreement in North America. They didn't want to go down that route. They chose to go for individual countries. They were going to negotiate with the US. They're going to negotiate with the EU. They're going to negotiate with Japan, etc. The second part of this general trade strategy is they've chosen to simultaneously pursue bilateral trade deals with multiple partners. And so they're pursuing one with the EU, the other one that's been in the news a lot is the US, but they're also pursuing these bilateral deals with smaller partners like Japan, Australia, Canada. And let's, I'd like to first start with what is the value of doing that and how can we think about this multiple agreement strategy? So the first thing is about 50% of UK trade, UK exports go to the EU, about 10% go to the US, Smaller partners like Japan receive about 1% of UK exports, maybe a little bit less. So if we have that in mind, just how important are these countries as trade partners currently, this kind of gives us some understanding of the government's own estimates of the importance of trade agreements with these partners. So if we go back to November 2018, we look at the white paper on UK's exit from the EU and what were going to be the consequences. We were told then leaving without a deal would reduce UK GDP at a 10-year horizon by about 7.6%. So GDP will be lower in the long run if there's no deal. Now, relative to that, 
if we're able to secure a sort of reasonable FTA with the EU, UK GDP at a 10-year horizon will only be about 4.9% lower than having remained in the EU. So the key thing is where we are right now, we've left the EU, how much better can we do than where we'll be without any deal? And if we secure a sort of reasonably decent FTA with the EU, this will give the UK a 2.7% increase in GDP at a 10-year horizon relative to no agreement at all. So that's, that's, that's a good thing. So let's work on a deal. The second thing is if we look as recently as this February, we see another white paper coming out from UK government telling us that they've looked at two different scenarios for the benefit of negotiating a free trade agreement with the United States. They have a modest FTA. This will increase UK GDP at a 10-year horizon by seven hundredths of 1%. And if they get a deeper, pretty extensive FTA, this FTA will also be beneficial to the UK economy. It could raise GDP by 16 hundredths of 1% at a 10-year horizon. So the relative magnitudes here are critical. An EU FTA is very important in terms of the future well-being of the UK economy. An agreement with the United States is nice, but the magnitude of the benefit is a rounding error relative to what we could secure with the EU. When we get to smaller partners like Japan, which receive only about 1% of our exports, we're really talking about trivial, trivial benefits to be secured. So very, very small. Okay. So then that's where we are right now. I think this makes clear the top priority has got to be securing some kind of trade agreement with the EU. This is very important for the future of Britain. Now, the problem um, both you know, Tony and Catherine have mentioned are the stumbling blocks, what lay ahead. So from my perspective and thinking about just the free trade agreement, the big stumbling block here are what the EU are calling level playing field commitments. This comes up in any kind of FTA between any two partners. If after negotiating reductions in tariffs, one of the two parties to an agreement changes their domestic policies a lot, either their tax policies, their labor policies, their environmental policies, they can potentially unwind and reduce the benefits to the other partner of signing the FTA in the first place. So it's not unusual for trading partners negotiating a trade agreement to try to get some sense of can we keep domestic policy roughly where it is so that the negotiations don't allow the benefits of the trade agreement to be unwound for one side. Um, The UK and the EU have very different perspectives on this. The EU has said that level playing field commitments in environment, labor, taxation, competition, state aid are all very important. And they also importantly have laid out a very strict and binding set of dispute resolution policies. The UK on the other hand has gone, Catherine described it as a Switzerland style arrangement. I would say that actually their draft was very similar to the comprehensive and economic trading agreement with Canada. And that model is basically, we're gonna say things like, it's very good to have fair labor market policy in all partners. There's an appeal to an outside multilateral institution, for example, the International Labor Organization. And the dispute settlement that the UK is proposing is either not existent or it's some kind of joint committee. So essentially saying, you know, we're happy to abide by WTO rules on subsidies 
And if there's a problem and the UK, EU is not happy with UK subsidization of an industry, we're happy to go to the WTO and have that negotiated multilaterally. But we don't want to come under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. I think there's got to be some wiggle room between these two extreme positions. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I think there's there's sort of valid arguments on both sides. I think taking the European Court of Justice out of this as much as possible could potentially be a step forward. It's also the case that for many areas, the UK probably wants to choose independently of its own free will policies that the EU thinks are, are pretty reasonable. So as an example, you can see that we just had the establishment of, you know, or the proposal to establish a new area over animal welfare and farm policy. So it seems that at the moment there's a big impetus in the UK to have animal welfare standards that are more similar to those in the EU than the US. So this is just to say there are probably areas where some realm of cooperation is available if people, both sides are willing to kind of step out of their entrenched positions. Um, I guess I, with that, I think I should leave this, we can talk about this in, in some detail as we go forward with the Q&A. But I, I think there is some room. I think one of the things the EU wants to avoid is having lots of issues end up in litigation at the WTO for years and years. So I'll just say one example, the, e, the US and Canada have spent most of the last 25 years litigating subsidies to lumber at the WTO. And I think the EU can see that and say, well, we don't want to end up in one of these situations where we're ending in permanent litigation over a particular issue. Let's try to get as much taken care of a priori as possible. And I think the UK has not been fully sympathetic to the idea that we need to iron out some problems now so we can avoid lengthy litigation in the future. Thank you, Meredith, very much indeed. Uh, very clear. Uh, so now let's turn to business and Adam Marshall. Uh, what are the implications of deal, no deal for business, Adam? Kevin, thank you very much and good afternoon, everyone. Pleasure to be here today with uh, many esteemed colleagues and friends. Um, the British Chambers of Commerce um, and the Chambers of Commerce that we have all across the UK play a role in facilitating trade. We help businesses move goods across borders. Uh, last year alone, we helped about 680,000 shipments leave the UK um, and ensure that they cleared customs around the world. Uh, those shipments had a value of about £20 billion. So we have a deep practical role that we play, as well as the role that we play in lobbying for business interests. We also do quite a lot of practical work on the ground, helping companies move goods around. Hence, we have uh, some uh, interest, of course, in what happens with the Brexit process, because there are real-world practicalities involved here uh, in terms of how companies will move goods, uh, people, and data in future. Uh, it's certainly a sensitive time for our business communities. If I were to be completely honest with you, I would say that attention has not been on Brexit in the last four months in most businesses out of sheer necessity. Uh, the immediate requirement has been saving businesses, handling a cash crisis, uh, doing the right thing by employees wherever possible, 
finding routes uh, around the world to get goods uh, out to customers and to get supplies in uh, as well, uh, when uh, the capacity of the international logistics network has been very significantly constrained, uh, etc. So the challenges of COVID have made the challenges of Brexit look smaller by comparison. But that doesn't mean, of course, that they have gone away. Um, and our quarterly economic survey, which is the biggest private sector business survey in the UK, is due out tomorrow, 7,700 businesses responding. And I think it shows the sheer scale of the challenge that we're dealing with. Um, you know, many indicators uh, in that survey at their historic lows for the 31 years that we have been running it, uh, business confidence on future orders, on recruitment intentions, on turnover, etc., cetera, uh, plumbing uh, historical depths in, in many cases. So there's a huge challenge there. Uh, and Brexit, of course, has now come back onto many of those businesses' radar as something that they are going to need to grapple with at the same time. Um, so many companies are starting to wake up again from their initial virus fighting phase um, and, and, and dealing with the immediate impacts of coronavirus and say, we need to begin thinking again very actively about our preparations for uh, the world after December the 31st, 2020. Uh, most of them don't want a double whammy. They don't want to see um, the effect of COVID-19, which will be with us for many months and years to come, plus a, uh, a disorderly outcome to the Brexit negotiations. Uh, but there's also a feeling amongst many businesses that they don't want to keep prolonging uh, the, uh, the inevitable. So uh, organizations like ours had split business communities in them, some saying, you know, we should extend the transition period to deal with COVID. Others saying, actually, we don't want to extend the transition any further because there has to be some conclusion, some sort of finality to this part of the Brexit process. So business is not monolithic in their opinions, but of course, most of them do want to get to a reasonable and sensible deal and hope that there is a landing zone between the two sides over the next few months. Um, colleagues up till now have talked a lot about the framework. They've talked a lot about the governance, of course, on which these things can rise and fall. I think business concern is about the detail and how much it's going to cost for them to comply with those frameworks and with that governance. Um, on goods, for example, Businesses are going to have to deal with new UK border management procedures and uh, different EU border management procedures, those procedures that, that have never been applied to UK goods exported uh, across the channel. We also have a new and different system for moving things from Great Britain into Northern Ireland as a result of the protocol, which again adds very significant cost and uncertainty to businesses. And for our members in Northern Ireland, some great, great concern about the future because they have a set of trading arrangements that no one else in the UK or indeed in the world really is subjected to. Uh, there are also concerns from our businesses around people as well, the unanswered questions around people. Um, so many companies provide services from one country to another. Will someone be able to fly in, provide a service uh, and be recognized as being able to provide a service to a customer and fly back out again? And then, of course, the question of data. And here, I think the UK has been clearer in its uh, 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 statement as to what it's going to do than the EU has uh, up till now, the ICO being, being, being fairly clear on what's expected. Um, but of course, the ability to move customer data from 
the EU into the UK uh, and uh, the, having an adequacy decision on, on, on GDPR, hugely important to so many firms too. So those practicalities really are what people care about and what matter to them. Um, I'd also say there's been some divergent preparation. Bigger and more internationally businesses, internationally minded businesses have done more than smaller firms have. Um, many of the smaller firms have taken a watch and wait approach. The reason being that they need to see a landing zone first before commit scarce and scarce people time to preparation. We've seen this before the various other deadlines. I'm afraid we'll see it again and we'll have a three-month period up to the end of the year if they fail with a lot of smaller businesses scrambling to get ready for change. Um, and that's going to need some support from the UK government as well. Um, there needs to be a greater scale of funding and support for preparation. One example would be around custom mediaries where the government has to help make sure that the sector is ready with what may be 200 million additional export emissions. So there is still much to do and it's going to be backloaded uh, right to the end of the process. Uh, Chambers of Commerce will be there. We'll do whatever we can to help on both customs and origin uh, uh, issues will all arise in future trade agreements. And we'll also work via our network of members too. We have a British chamber on the ground in almost every EU member that is part of our network. Try to overcome some of the practical barriers using those networks and using those connections. To the point by colleagues previously, there's going to be period of time as we adjust to this new relationship and business networks are going to be very, very important indeed to helping firms navigate through that. I think I'll leave it there, Kevin. Thank you very much and look forward to the discussion. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Adam. Uh, Anand, uh, give us your summing up of where we are. Okay, I'll, I'll try and be quite quick because most of what I was going to say has <clears throat> been said. Uh, I think there will be a deal this year. I think uh, simply because both sides recognise quite openly that it is better for them and better in terms of their own interest to get a deal than to not get a deal. The only sort of deal that is achievable in the time we've had, we've got left, I think, is a very thin trade deal. Uh, and it'll be mainly a trade deal with lots of things, as Catherine was saying, things like foreign and security policy being completely left out, simply because there isn't the time and space to negotiate those things. Now, when I say a thin deal, what I mean is, and as Meredith was, was, was hinting at it, that actually this is a sort of deal that lies probably around halfway between Theresa May's deal and no deal in terms of its overall uh, economic impact. And that, as Adam was hinting at, means even with a deal, let's not lose sight of the fact that businesses are going to have to undertake significant processes of adaptation because their business models are going to have to change. If you think about those highly integrated sectors like car manufacturing, uh, current just-in-time supply chains will no longer work the way they used to work because this isn't about tariffs, it's about checks, it's about regulatory standards. It is basically a question of making trade lumpier, harder, more difficult, more costly. But as Catherine said quite rightly, despite that, we shouldn't lose from sight the enormous difference between deal and no deal. And that difference is as much political as economic. If we had no deal, we would enter a period, I think, of rather nasty mutual recrimination and finger pointing on both sides of the channel as states blamed the EU states blamed the UK and the UK blamed the EU for the outcome. That would make it very, very hard, I think, going forward for the two sides to sit together and discuss sanely the many areas of cooperation that we now undertake that are going to be left out of anything we sign 
this October. And those negotiations are going to have to happen because the real world means you can't simply leave counterterrorism cooperation to one side and not come back to it. The one thing I would say about this government as compared to other governments is it's the most intensely political government I think I've come across. And it is a government that is absolutely obsessed. And this was true if you talk to people in government back in December, sort of, you know, in the old world rather than the COVID world. They are utterly obsessed with re-election. And I think that's one of the reasons why they have been so set against extending transition is the simple fact that this is a prime minister whose USP is to deliver on what he says about Brexit. And he said he wouldn't extend transition. It's as simple as that. Going forward, however, the, the gamble, there are three problems inherent in this gamble that the government is taking of doing Brexit in the aftermath of COVID. Uh, the first is that the economics of Brexit will be different to the economics of COVID. I know there are some people who say you can bury the implications of Brexit under the much bigger impact of COVID. It's true in aggregate GDP terms to an extent. But if you think carefully about what Brexit means, there are going to be areas where COVID actually has had surprisingly little effect, where Brexit might well have more. Think of the food supply chains. Yes, it's true that international logistics have changed, but it is utterly remarkable to me that once you've got over the faff of queuing for your supermarket, you get inside and everything you need is still there at the same price. That is less likely to be true after Brexit because, of course, one of the areas where there will be checks is on agricultural products. So we'll see changes there. Second thing worth bearing in mind is that the economics of Brexit will be longer lasting. That is to say, those firms that have invested in plant here won't close down on the 1st of Jan, but in three, four years' time, when, say, car manufacturers are reassessing where to build their next model, then is the time when they might say, look, without access to the single market, there's no point in doing it in the UK. And, of course, the irony about the economics of both Brexit and COVID is they both serve to make the levelling up agenda far, far harder than it would have been. And it would have been hard even last December. Why? Because both COVID and Brexit seem set to impact most on those places, in those parts of the country, particularly those red wall seats where the government wants to bring about real economic change. So the economic task facing the government is a huge one. They're doing it at a time when Tony said where the centre is overloaded. And this is a government, you know, notwithstanding what Michael Gove said over the weekend, that doesn't want to give power away. This isn't a government that's going to devolve power to ensure levelling up. It's a government that wants to give presence to the rest of the country, for which we're thankful to London. If you look at the way they've set up the Shared Prosperity Fund, this isn't about co-ownership with the regions that will benefit. This is about London giving goodies to the rest of us. And London is going to be in a fraught state, given what's going on in the civil service and the number of issues post-COVID that will be dominating our politics. And the final problem I think that the government faces is there are profound divisions in conservative ranks on the economic route forward. Uh, One of the curious things about the Tory government we have at the moment is that whilst they are fairly cohesive on social values, and remember, this is a government that was elected, 82% of the people who voted Conservative last December supported Leave. So in social values terms, there's a fairly cohesive coalition there on the Tory side. When it comes to economics, we put out some research this week that showed that Conservative MPs are massively out of touch, not only with their own members, but particularly with Conservative voters in the sense that the Parliamentary Conservative Party is far more right-wing in terms of economics than many, in fact, most of their voters. And going forward, I suspect there are troubles to come for Boris Johnson with this ambitious investment 
plan he's he's unveiled, he unveiled today because some of his backbenchers at least are more wedded to traditional Tory economic values than he certainly seems to be. So in some what I'd say is the government is embarking on an extremely high risk political strategy given the economic context we find ourselves in. Doing Brexit in the way they're doing it on top of COVID will be a huge political gamble. But given the volatile state of our politics, it is far, far too soon to say, I think, whether it will succeed or not. I'll leave it there if that's okay. Thanks, Anand. Very much indeed. Uh, the questions are coming in, but before I attend to the questions from the audience, let me pick up uh, a point that Anand was uh, just making. Of course, on both sides of the Atlantic, the, in recent years, the politics of trade has become increasingly sensitive, increasingly important in terms of uh, voter attitudes, macho politics, uh, etc. Uh, but uh, in another LSE event recently, we heard a former Conservative trade minister say that in economic or legal terms, uh, trade agreements are actually not all that important, not so uh, so crucial. Essentially, people get head up about who wins, who loses in some kind of macho battle over the, whether there's a deal or no deal. And there's a blame game on different sides. But the trade minister was saying that actually, uh, when it comes to exports, imports, trade continues, whether there's an agreement or not, it's not going to be so crucial. Now, I've heard each of you give different uh, reasons why you think it is uh, crucial. But I just wonder if... Uh, someone would like to respond initially to to that query, uh, perhaps on the economics, Meredith. Is a trade agreement so important, an add-on to business? Is a trade agreement so, so crucial, especially when uh, companies have had increasing amounts of time to prepare for the possibility of a no deal? Um, Adam, uh, perhaps if you start uh, for business, is it so crucial? I, I think, Kevin, that on trade agreements, you have to differentiate between those that will give you a marginal incremental improvement on your existing level of market access and those like the, the UK-EU agreement, which are about preserving a certain level of market access. So the issue that businesses bring up to us is that they feel like the rug is about to be pulled out from under them in terms of the market access they already have to the European market. Hence, making sure that there is a deal between the UK and the EU must be the top priority. I think I share Meredith's analysis there that that is, uh, you know, the top priority being expressed by our business communities. So I'd only agree with the, uh, the, the, the minister in question that trade agreements aren't that important if you've been trading on WTO terms or enhanced WTO terms for a period of time and your businesses have figured out how to work with the economics of that, trade agreement may have marginal benefit, but not in this unique situation where actually we're going in the opposite direction in terms of market access. The UK-EU agreement is very different indeed. Thanks. Meredith, we all hear lots of people saying that uh, in 2016, economists were telling us that the, the world is about to finish if we vote for Brexit. Uh, economically, the impact hasn't been there. 
might we get to 20, um, 2021 and find that actually uh, no deal doesn't have immediate discernible economic impacts. And again, people think the economists got it wrong. So I'd break this. So some of these comments are just very strange to me. I think I'll break this up into a couple of pieces. So there's a short run impact and a long run impact. And I think one of the things that economists did get wrong in trying to explain to voters in early 2016 what would be the consequences of Brexit was they were explaining a sort of long run 10 year horizon forecast, but making it sound like it would happen on you know June 25th. And what we, what, when we give these long-run forecasts, we are talking about a drip, drip, drip of when you introduce costs into an economy and you introduce additional taxation and you addi- introduce additional regulation. And that is what leaving the EU is doing, is it's introducing a bunch of regulations at the border. You need to file customs paperwork, et cetera. You're raising costs, and this is going to tick, tick, tick away at economic activity, economic productivity, and you're going to have real losses. So there's nothing controversial from an economist's point of view. It is quite clear that when you introduce barriers to commercial activity, you are going to make people worse off in terms of what they consume and what they're able to consume. It's also the reality that Brexit in causing a major reduction in the value of the pound has made UK residents much poorer immediately than they otherwise would have been. So the value of assets in the UK, you know, the the value of prices have gone up, value of assets have fallen. So the UK is certainly much poorer than it was back in 2014. So this is not particularly controversial. The question is, you know, how much are things going to change in someone's individual life when we have a major economic crisis? So I'll point to one major economic crisis we've just experienced. COVID has caused unbelievably large reductions in economic activity and increases in UK unemployment, okay? So people are not working. We have not seen an economic crisis of this magnitude since the 1930s. No, you know, virtually no one alive experienced something like this before. The thing that's quite remarkable and that I will give much credit to the government for doing is they immediately took action with the COVID crisis and said the most important thing we need to do is we need to secure people's incomes so that they will stay home. We can prevent an implosion of the healthcare system. So the furlough system, which is going to be very costly for the UK, which all of our grandchildren will be paying for, has actually been very beneficial in keeping people alive because it kept people home from work. So for the average UK resident right now, they're getting a quite size, if they're furloughed, they're getting quite a sizable supplementary income. And so the damage of this horrible recession is nothing like what we experienced in the 80s or back in the 1930s. So if you try to say to someone, you know, how damaging can something be? It's not just the crisis, you know, but it's also the policy response. When we look at Brexit, you know, if we leave without a deal next, you know, January 1st, are we going to have a reduction in economic activity? Yes, certainly. How is this going to manifest itself? The sizable investments that foreign investors like Japanese car manufacturers have put into this country, they're not going to close the shops overnight, but there's not much demand for cars right now. And so they could very well, you know, say this, it's not really worthwhile reinvesting. So the 
process will come about gradually, but I don't think that it's it's correct to say this isn't going to be very damaging. The the step now is to say, well, economically it's going to reduce things. What do we do to move forward? Okay, Catherine, let's assume 1st of January, there is no deal. What do you think that will actually mean for things like um, healthcare arrangements for Brits uh, traveling to other EU countries, exporters, importers? There's no deal. There's no legal framework. What would you expect uh, begins to happen on the 1st of January? Well, um, I would say it's not going to be a, a, a crash overnight because various things will be put in place. First of all, the UK government has already said um, that for goods coming into the UK, uh, they will not be applying the full panoply of checks um, uh, and in the hope that the EU will make a similar offer. The EU has not played ball and has not made similar offer. And it must be said, um, the Dutch and the French borders, um, the, those countries have invested significantly in training customs officers, and so they are already in a better position. Um, and so the problem may be that even though the UK has got open borders, and that raises the question, do we really want open borders um, because of the risks of what products might be coming in you can see smugglers already rubbing their hands because they've been given six months notice um, it's goods going into the eu which will face some problems now what we also saw uh, in um, 20 at the end of 2018 early 2019 was that the uk sorry the eu unilaterally made some concessions over things like um, road haulage, um, so that it would be possible for uh, UK drivers to be able to drive into the EU to deliver goods, but they wouldn't be able to engage in cabotage, and cabotage is a legal jargon for um, being able to go from, instead of just, if your goods are going to be delivered in Paris, you could then, with cabotage, you could then go on to Rome to pick up some more goods and then come back. The concession was only to allow goods from London to be delivered in Paris, and then the driver comes back to London. Um, but these were for short term, uh, six months or nine months, and they were concessions, so they could be withdrawn at any stage. So um, what we might see if things are going reasonably well, but it looks like we're heading for a no deal, you might see the EU making a limited number of concessions, or they might not, because, of course, it is purely that a concession. Um, the legal position is if we leave with no deal, we default to WTO terms. But as Adam was making clear, it's all very well for lawyers to say, oh, well, we can trade in WTO terms. But that doesn't actually help your delivery driver um, at the frontier trying to navigate getting their goods through. Now, trading on WTO terms, the UK and Change of Europe has done a report on this for goods. It's probably manageable, but for services, the provisions in the GATS are really pretty thin indeed. And do remember that although we talk a lot about goods and with great respect to Adam, of course, lots of his members are involved in manufacturing. But of course, for us, services is such an important dimension of our economy, 70, 80 percent of our economy is services. And GATS really does not give us the access in any way um, to what we want. But it won't necessarily be the first of um, or 2nd of January, because the WTO doesn't have some army of police officers who can come and enforce stuff. Um, indeed, the WTO doesn't work like that at all. The WTO works through 
um, engagement at a high level between states. So it won't just turn on in practical terms overnight, but it will be messy. Okay, thanks. Tony, um, a no deal. Uh, I wonder whether Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, um, whether his support would be impacted negatively at all by uh, no deal? And does a no deal place uh, give him an, actually an advantage via the, the new leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer? Well, I mean, the Labour Party, I think, under its new leadership, which is itself an important element in British politics, I mean, making the uh, opposition uh, more electable than it has been for some time, I think it's fair to say. Um, I think that Labour has effectively said, well, we're not going to, I think they're not to um, exaggerate their position, that they will allow um, the government to go ahead with its Brexit policies and they, the Labour Party will judge them accordingly, I think is sort of a sort of summary of the Labour Party's views from here on. Uh, I doubt it's in the Prime Minister's interest really to produce a no-deal Brexit and the reason for that is, linked to the question of how trade deals work, is that no-deal Brexit, which is a kind of trade deal, it's just a deal to default to new terms, as compared with a thin deal or whatever it is, all of these things, and it came up earlier on, do have an impact inside the United Kingdom. That is the reason that the trade minister that you were referring to anonymously earlier, I think I think was wrong, is that any deal has an impact. And you can see this from the enormous amount of time we apply as, as a country to wondering about agriculture and fisheries because a particular deal of one kind or another on these highly sensitive, emotionally charged industries uh, occupies massive amounts of time. It's all in the press again this morning about the need to protect farmers, effectively to have trade, only to have trade deals where farmers can do better, really. That's the kind of broad positioning. But you can see from that how aerospace or car manufacture or services, all of those, will be affected differently by a UK deal with the EU or with the United States or Japan, and that will feed back into regional impacts inside the UK. So a trade deal that is uh, good for everything other than car manufacture, bad for car manufacture, will clearly affect Sunderland or Deeside or you know places where there is heavy manufacturing more than it would uh, the city of London and the city of Westminster to take to, to, and if equally yeah. if financial services are abandoned to the winds then central London will be affected Sunderland less and I just think that that is a very heavy demand to place on trade negotiators because they're not trying to do a UK-wide deal they're having to think how will this play out in individual parts of the UK and that is all for the future. Okay thanks and um no deal come January. Uh, that would come after the presidency of uh, Germany, of the European Union. Angela Merkel expected to step down uh, next year. Do you think when Angela Merkel thinks of her uh, legacy as a political leader in Europe, uh, she would actually wish it to be marked by a no deal? And I wonder to what extent do you think Merkel and President Macron could actually live with a no deal? I think what is clear to me is they both, and actually your logic on uh, Merkel applies to Michel Barnier as well, I think. I don't think he wants a no deal, but I don't think any of them want a deal at any price. 
so that's the rub is yes if push came to shove they would be willing to sign up to a deal i think they'll be willing to make compromises my sense is that their opening gambit on state aid and indeed on fisheries was deliberately maximalist because they understand a little bit now how we work in this country and they're aware of the fact that they have to sh- they have to be shown to have made concessions uh, and I think that they've adopted positions that allow them to make concessions so that Boris Johnson can trumpet his massive victory when it gets to the autumn. But uh, both sides are going to have to make concessions. I just think, I mean, as Tony, I think, said, but politically for Boris Johnson, uh, the guy who remember campaigned only a few months ago on the back of the claim that he had an oven-ready deal, coming out of this with some sort of deal is infinitely preferable politically to coming out of it with no deal. And this is where I think your former trade minister had a point. Yes, absolutely. Adam's spot on. The status quo ante is crucial. This is a trade negotiation unlike any other in the sense that the status quo is the status quo ante isn't going to apply. You go back to something far worse than the status quo if you don't get a deal. But still, the political imperative is for Boris Johnson to hold up a deal and say, I got it. Just like with the United States, as Meredith said, they were talking margin of error sort of stuff here on a quick and dirty trade deal with the United States. But that's not the point. The point is that Boris Johnson can hold it up and say global Britain in a very loud voice. Uh, You know, one of the things I'm very uncertain about is what the political salience of economic effects is. Because these things will happen over time. They won't happen all of a sudden. You won't suddenly get a shock on the 1st of January. And there, this is what I refer to in my opening remarks. This is the gamble that actually with a, with a mixture of apparent success in signing these documents that mean that the US lovers and the Japanese lovers and the Australians lovers, plus the kind of rhetoric at which our prime minister is so good, you know, lots of references to vim and vigor, you sort of haul this thing towards looking like a success and hope that actually the rather sort of subtle economic impacts as they play out will be kind of lost from sight, not least if you're chucking money at the country at the same time. Okay, thanks. Let's go to the questions coming from our audience. And uh, I understand the most popular question comes from uh, a LSE student, of course it would, uh, Sam Rippon. Uh, I'm reading, the timetable for negotiation was already short and most circles would agree that concluding a deal was ambitious. What impact has COVID-19 pandemic had on this timetable from a European perspective with regards to diplomatic energy and determination to conclude? I wonder, Anand, would you like to start off with that? Well, it certainly had an impact. I mean, I'm not sure the timescale matters that much because we're talking about a thin deal, but yet both chief negotiators were knocked out with the disease, which took them out of action, and negotiating by Zoom, as we all now know, is an absolute nightmare and not as good, as effective or indeed as fun as doing it in person. What I would say is COVID has just blotted everything else off the horizon. And, you know, one thing I would add to my earlier remarks in saying I think they'll get a, we'll get a deal is we won't get a deal until the autumn when the political principles step in and make the compromises necessary. And if we're in the middle of a massive second spike in September, October, then all bets are off. So COVID affects things by completely taking attention away elsewhere. I think that's the crucial thing. I don't think, you know, I don't think whether we have three months or five months or six months makes any difference. If you're talking under six years, you're right, you're, you're striking a relatively limited deal. And that's what we're going to do. Catherine, I wonder whether you'd like to pick that up as well, that um, whether this year the European perspective is uh, changing on, on Brexit. Um. 
I think um, I would say absolutely the EU has got very bored with Brexit. Um, and more importantly, they've got bigger fish to fry. And for them, the biggest fish that they need to fry at the moment is sorting out the implications of COVID and particularly the implementation of the recovery plan. And the recovery plan really is a big bazooka if it goes through. Um, and it would be a sign of significant confidence from the Northern European states in the European Union project, which actually touches upon another one of the questions that's come in about will the EU survive? If the huge recovery plan is put into place, and most of it comes in the form of grants, not loans, uh, to the states which have suffered the most, uh, namely Spain and Italy, um, then I think this is a very important way forward. But as a footnote to that, just remember, um, the ECB um, has come up with various asset purchasing schemes over the last few years. It is just worth keeping an eye on what's going on um, in the German uh, Constitutional Court. Um, it placed a pretty large bomb under the European Court of Justice uh, by saying in their decision in early May that um, actually... Uh, the Court of Justice has screwed things up royally. They were not um, up to the job um, and uh, because they weren't up to the job, nor in fact with the ECB up to the job because the ECB haven't properly explained the proportionality of um, their proposals. Uh, it's not, of course, uh, things that the personnel are changing in the um, German Constitutional Court, but I would just say it has opened the way for other states dissenting states, Poland, Hungary in particular, to say, well, look, the Court of Justice doesn't respect the rule of law. Um, and look, the um, most, probably the most important constitutional court in Europe says that. Therefore, we don't need to comply with the rule of law. And so there are all sorts of really major issues facing the EU, of which Brexit must be probably five, six, possibly 10. Certainly not number one. Thanks, Catherine. I wonder if I could just follow up in terms of um, attitudes towards the ECJ being part of the Brexit deal. Your um, opening comments were to suggest that uh, this could really be uh, crucial to a, a no-deal outcome. And I wonder whether the German Constitutional Court has actually created a little bit of flexibility there, that the EU uh, leaders themselves might say, well, the ECJ doesn't have to be so central? I, th I think it's unlikely. I think um, the German Constitutional Court um, gave a judgment which really was incendiary. The language used was really quite striking and quite, um, uh, and indeed incendiary. And indeed, there's significant disagreement even amongst uh, senior German judges about what the Constitutional Court has done. They president of the Supreme Court came out and said this is very damaging to European democracy. It's very damaging um, also because the German Constitutional Court got its law wrong too, which I've got some sympathy for. Um, it hasn't, it must be said, shone a very kindly light on the Court of Justice who've struggled to respond. Um, but I, I, I would say that um, I what you're not seeing is a backlash from a lot of states um, okay. uh, against the Court of Justice. But that said, there's also a number of other constitutional courts, the Czech Constitutional Court's a good example, which is showing resistance to the 
the seeming hegemony of the Court of Justice. But you don't see politicians, the mainstream politicians, really fighting this fight. And the orthodox position over which the EU27 politicians can at least coalesce around is to say, actually, autonomy of EU law is absolutely core for the functioning of the single market, and only the Court of Justice can have the final say on that. And that has become totemic for the EU in a way that having some foreign court interfering in our day-to-day life has become totemic for the UK. Okay, thanks. Tony, we have a question from Carolina Valiente. What will be the expected response to Brexit in January 2021 from the governments in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? Well, I mean, the the governments of Scotland uh, in particular, where, you know, the government is committed to another independence uh, referendum at some point soon. Wales, where there's less of that, there isn't that kind of threat, but the, the Welsh government, like the Scottish government, is pretty unenthusiastic about, uh, well, very unenthusiastic about Brexit. Northern Ireland, uh, different again, because the, um, the reinstated Northern Ireland government uh, power sharing, very different makeup, but still has, particularly for the DP leadership of that uh, assembly, um, views about, they've been referred to earlier, the question of trade across the Irish Sea in this uh, new deal that um, Boris Johnson appears to be moving, or sorry, the position that Boris Johnson has moved towards. But coming back to Scotland, which is clearly in the short term, the um, key issue here. I mean, I think at its simplest, you know, the the nearer to a no deal or an actual no, actual no deal uh, that the UK government gets, in some ways, uh, the easier for the Scottish government to portray itself as the protector and defender of Scotland's interest in the EU, and therefore, uh, at the margin, make it somewhat easier to go with the second referendum that they hope they might win. Having said that, and we heard uh, from Meredith earlier about this, the the scale of unemployment and the withdrawal of furloughing and all of those policies, which are UK-wide policies, a lot of the heavy lifting is a UK-wide policy, uh, I think means that COVID-19 might make the people of Scotland a little bit more cautious than otherwise they would have done were there to be another referendum as a result of a complicated end to Brexit. So uh, it's still there as an issue, I think, for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But I think that as ever, and everybody's made this point today, the massive impact of COVID-19 makes anything we thought before a bit less obvious to say now. And I think that also applies to Scottish independence myself. Well, thank you. You've picked up a question from Mark Pettit, uh, which was indeed about um, Brexit and the possibility of a no-deal impact on the independence uh, debates. 2021, there will be a Scottish election. I just wonder, Tony, just very briefly, if I may, next year, an election in Scotland. Boris Johnson's delivered no deal. Scotland massively against uh, Brexit. Um, Are you really saying that um, it would make the Scottish voters cautious about independence? Well, what I, st- I think I'm saying is that the scale of the impact on all parts of the United Kingdom, the impact of COVID-19 and the 
in effectively the need for the UK government's borrowing power, which we haven't discussed at scale today. I mean, the you know somewhere out there, there's another book to be written about the remarkable degree of borrowing by the UK and its acceptance of the long-term need to continue to do so. What I'm saying is that would feed into, I think, any debate about uh, Scottish independence and indeed about the capacity to devolve power throughout the country at some level, at least until we can see where the economy is going and how long unemployment and the need to keep borrowing okay. is present in debate. Okay. Adam, there's a question uh, here. Let me get the right one uh, here. Yes, from Fatima Iqbal. Um, thank you for the discussion. Could you please discuss the impacts of potential trade protectionist policies in supporting British businesses in the post-Brexit future? Thanks, Kevin. That's a, that's a difficult question, probably deserving of a webinar in its own right, um, because there are two types of protectionist policies one could refer to. They could uh, refer to protectionist policies on the part of the United Kingdom itself, uh, attempting to, to put domestic producers behind some sort of tariff or non-tariff wall to protect them. Or it could be the, the, the variable geometry of protectionism that we see in other countries around the globe that affects British exporters and British supply chains. Um, the honest view uh, that I see in, in most of our business communities uh, is that excessive protectionism helps no one at the end of the day. Um, and that competition uh, generally is a better route to increasing productivity and enhancing well-being than than literally throwing the wall up and uh, uh, to to reduce that competition from happening. Um, I, I do not see any indication that a future UK government is going to pursue a more protectionist trade policy uh, than uh, the the UK did as part of the European Union. I think uh, I, I think the instinct is in fact in in the opposite direction. That will be comfortable for for some companies operating here, uncomfortable for others. But I think a stated goal uh, that we've seen from the government. Uh, the, the wild card, though, in this situation is how other countries react to the COVID crisis and whether they put protectionist barriers or measures in place that affect our businesses. Um, we've already spoken about the, the ongoing UK-US negotiations. And I think that's one country where a lot of businesses have expressed a concern that a reflex action on protectionist measures could impact UK firms overnight, the, the, the economics of their trading relationship with US overnight. And they don't want to see that sort of thing. So in the main, I think uh, trying to get the rules-based international trading system working again, trying to get the institutions working again, and trying to avoid a bout of tit-for-tat protectionism uh, is going to be a major goal for, for a lot of us over the coming years. Or, I'm afraid, uh, we are going to face reduced trade and with it probably greater poverty or le less additional prosperity for all concerned. Okay. Meredith, would you like to uh, follow up on that? The only thing I'll add is that I think one of the interesting things that's changing in the realm of international trade right now, and Britain's kind of going to be wrapped up in this in some degree, is that geopolitics is starting to interact with economics in a way that it has not in a very long time. And so specifically, we're seeing in the United States this increasing interest in export restrictions on certain sophisticated technologies. 
And we've always had in the U.S. export restrictions on different types of military hardware, and we restrict how far down the supply chain these, these different military technologies can go. Um, there seems to be a new interest, and it's not just limited to President Trump. So I think this could potentially continue if we get a Democrat in the White House. Things like this concern over, you know, export of technologies to Huawei and to be used in different types of communications technologies. And so I think one of the things that Britain needs to be wary of as it goes forward with its own independent trade policy is what kinds of ramifications U.S. concerns over national security might have in Britain's relationships with other trading partners. So, for example, I think the U.K. has generally, as Adam said, a kind of open-minded and liberal attitude toward trade and investment. I think they'd want more investment coming in from China. Maybe, you know, the UK has traditionally not been very restrictive on investment coming in from places like Russia. I could see that the US going forward, completely outside of any trade agreement, just saying to the UK, look, we're, we've got more concerns about our relationship with you related to your relationship with China. And so I think as the US starts to raise these geopolitical concerns, they can impinge on other countries' ability to do things they want to do. And it's not clear how that's all going to play out. But to the extent that a lot of Brits are saying, oh, well, our next step is going to be to, you know, try to open more deeply with China, I'm not sure um, to what extent that might hinder other relationships. Okay, good. Thank you. Another popular question is from Matthew Howard from Winchester College. Um, Will the next, and I think this is for Catherine initially, uh, please. Will the next government be able to renegotiate a new deal that would include freedom of movement and access to the customs union? What would be the mechanism for this? Um, the legal answer to that question is yes. Um, there is a provision for um, states to join the European Union, uh, assuming that's the, imp the implicit um, underpinning of the question. Um, and indeed, Article 50, the provision which we based our divorce on expressly, makes clear that a state can rejoin. So in theory, it is possible. Um, I would be astonished, I think, if, let's for argument's sake, imagine that there was a Labour government that came into power, led by Keir Starmer, that the first thing he would do was to say, let's start renegotiating. I think it's been extremely painful, this whole process. More likely would be to do an increasing um, uh, approach that the Swiss have adopted, that you bolt on more and more to this basic free trade agreement. Indeed, the Swiss have a bolt on for um, free movement, but they themselves are struggling with the free movement bolt on. Um, and so um, I do think it would be possible to add new bits to it. And indeed, um, that's one of the reasons why I suggested that we may well be still talking about this in 2033. I'd rather pluck that figure out of the sky. But um, because if, you, if it becomes, if the UK starts to realise that, as Meredith has shown, the EU is such an important trading partner for us in all matters, then things that have not got sorted out now may be sorted out in a less... Uh, vexed political context um, sometime in the future. Thanks very much. We're going to run out of time, but I'd like to come back to Anand. There's uh, a couple of questions which I think you might be able to link together, uh, please. There's a question here. Um, 
Do you think delivering a Brexit free of ECJ intervention, as feared by Marc Francois et al., is actually compatible with levelling up parts of the country, such as the Red Wall, whose votes the Conservatives are keen to keep or win over at the next uh, election? Um, let me keep that separate at the moment. Anand, would you like to respond to that? Uh well, yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that the government can clearly borrow quite cheap at the moment. And as I said, I'm I'm not clear in my own mind what convinces voters that things are getting better. I'm cynical enough to think that, you know, if you stick a couple of big diggers in the middle of Wakefield and say, you know, Boris is here to dig a hole that's going to be infrastructure for you, that has more impact than cynics like me would think that it should. That's to say it's the politics of symbolism. But if you really mean level up the country, no, a one or two term government isn't enough to do what Boris Johnson has said he wanted to do, because A, we don't tend to be very good at infrastructure. Uh, and so getting this right is going to be a struggle, even in the best of times, and we're not in the best of times. And B, inequalities are quite profound and deep-rooted, and they involve all sorts of things, from building infrastructure that's going to take time to improving skills in these areas, improving education and health outcomes. This is a long-term project. So, you know, we're not going to level up by 2024. The question is whether or not the government can do enough to convince those people in seats that, after all, have seen relatively little in the way of government, and certainly of government helping them over the last few decades, to convince those people that something qualitatively new is going on and they should try and stick with it because it's better than what went before. I mean, that's the question. And there, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think it's feasible. Okay, this may be the last question, and it can be for anyone. It's indeed looking uh, forward. This is from Anna Maria Pilati, uh, an economist and strategist in London. The way forward should not be to preserve a status quo, but to find a new way forward. In the post-COVID, post-Brexit world, what are and should be the UK's new unique selling points and what government policies do we need to support this? Can this government be the creative visionary Enormous pressure bears down on the government, and I think we've all agreed on that today. That there, you know, we can argue about how we got here, but given we have got here, the government has now got to, you know, deal with the fallout from COVID nineteen, which is spectacular, and uh, Brexit, and all the normal things that governments will be having to deal with. And I think against that backdrop. You know, there's a lot of people saying we must have a better economy after COVID-19. And by that, they mean the economy they personally always wanted. And I'm not, you know, we're all guilty of this to some degree. And so I think the question is, how does the government go about delivering that? So they're going to have to do things that are a bit un-British, certainly un-British public policy, like, you know, there'll have to be some kind of industrial strategy. I think I can't see how the government can get away from uh, an industrial strategy. Michael Gove made a very interesting speech at the Ditchley Foundation at the weekend, not a million miles away from the kind of white heat of the technological revolution speech Harold Wilson made in the 1960s. And, you know, I, I do think that this government will have to be activist and that the trade-off that has been referred to between members of the government who are die-hard free trade globalists and those who are 
They want to intervene and manage the economy as if it was the Ackley government after 1945. We're going to have to sort this out, but I don't see how they can escape industrial policy to make decisions of the kinds implied by this question. Okay, many thanks. Anyone else? Quickly, Meredith. Well, I was just going to say, I think the big thing COVID is highlighting is the extent to which inequality exists in British society and the fact that some you know, ethnic minority groups, as well as people at the bottom end of the income distribution are dying. <laughs> um, and so I think this is just kind of a, a hyper statement about what we already knew was going on with wages. And so I think actually, I'm not a fan of industrial policy and activist government. I think the government should be creating, you know, conditions where innovation can develop. But I think at the same time, they really need to take a very clear look at the problem of inequality in the society. And I think that's how they're going to get more sympathy from voters. So I think it's... Okay. Leave it there. Many thanks. Very briefly, Adam, I wonder if you wanted to pick up on the point about uh, differences across uh, regions uh, from a potential no deal and what it might mean for the businesses that you represent. It is a very significant concern. We know we have some uh, parts of the UK that are uh, more export orientated. The northeast of England is a good example of that and orientated towards the European Union. Uh, there are others. Uh, and I think that everything that happens over the coming months, whether it's about COVID or whether it's about Brexit, needs an explicit geographic lens on it. Too often we say that the UK is an economy. No, the UK is a collection of economies, localized economies. And I think analysis uh, from institutions such as your own needs to look at that very carefully so that we can provide the best possible evidence and data on what's going on on the ground in places. Because at the end of the day, elections uh, and prosperity are both won and lost in communities, not just at the abstract level of the nation state. Okay, many thanks. We've tried to respond to quite a number of questions that our uh, guests have uh, offered. Inevitably, we're not able to answer every uh, question. I think in the discussion, we've uh, had a broad ranging uh, agenda. Uh, and I hope that we've gone from the, as it were, the known knowns to the known unknowns, and that you feel uh, better informed as to the scenarios uh, going forward. Uh, but we must now uh, conclude this discussion. If you wish to uh, follow our upcoming events, simply Google the LSE programme on Brexit and beyond. But on your behalf, can I thank each of our panellists for their excellent contributions and their willingness to answer the questions that you've uh, posed to them. Thank you, colleagues, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Goodbye.